Welcome to the Awe and Wonder podcast, AAC and AT. I'm Sarah Kinsella. And I'm Brenda Del Monte. We are beyond thrilled today to have our special guest, um, Dr. David Copenhaver here. We're so excited to be able to talk to him about literacy. Um, you all know this already, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, Dr. Copenhaver is the co-author of Comprehensive Literacy for All, the book that we all know and love and that really has changed our careers. Um, he's co-founder of the Center for Literacy and Disability Studies at UNC Chapel Hill, where you probably get all of your resources, I know we do, um, and a professor of reading education. And I'm curious because I think you have, um, you have a change in your career recently, right? Have you maybe retired recently? <laughs> yeah, as of June 30th, I'm retired from Appalachian State. That doesn't mean I'll quit working. Uh, it does mean I'll stop teaching classes formally and you won't find me serving on committees. Okay, congratulations. Yeah. But we'll right. still hear from you, I'm sure. That's good. You sound <laughs> like you retire like the rest of the people in the field, which is kind of. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, I guess. Yeah. Uh, plenty of writing and teaching left to do in the field. Great. Good. Good. Yes. Dave, is there a student that comes to mind that just kind of blew your socks off when it comes to literacy skills? Like maybe someone who made you think, um, wow, okay, all students really need opportunities for literary ins literacy instruction. I'm um, sure there, there might have been many. <laughs> I'm going to reframe the question because I think it assumes that there was a time that I didn't think that all students should be taught to read and write. And that's mm. just not the case. Um, I had the good fortune to grow up in a family with an English professor father and a preschool teaching mother. And, um, you know, we just didn't, we read a lot. We talked a lot. We traveled and I had multiple advantages in getting into graduate school. I had the good fortune to accidentally meet David Yoder, who um, people probably now, if they're younger, may not quite appreciate as fully as uh, they should. Uh, David was one of the co-founders of the field of augmentative and alternative communication. Mm -hmm. I just happened to be a student at the time he moved from Wisconsin to UNC Chapel Hill. Um, wow. Met him. He then sort of introduced me to... Um, the population, we started visiting a school in Raleigh. And um, so I'm, I'm going to flip the question slightly. And that is, so when we went to this classroom in Raleigh, I met a, a young boy uh, named Jabari who used uh, still to this day, the most elaborate eye gaze system I have ever seen. Uh, it was, uh, I want to say four by four grid. It had uh, bliss symbols. Uh, it had words. Uh, it had colors, it had phrases, it had just everything you could possibly think of, except the alphabet. Hmm. Um, and one of the questions I asked Jabari when I first met him was, uh, which is often what I ask kids, uh, what's your favorite book? And he told me with his symbols, uh, brown food, big house. And I didn't know what he was saying. And, and so I said, is there any way you can tell me anything else? And he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't give me first letter of any of the words. He couldn't spell any of the words. Uh, he mm -hmm. was an incredibly bright, capable kid. Uh, he was uh, well known in his community as a fabulous poker player. Mm -hmm. uh, people would move the cards for him, but he, you know, would direct with his eyes. And uh, and so just su super smart, super capable, not able to read and spell. And that really brought home to me the kinds of conversations that David and I were having where I didn't fully understand or appreciate the difficulties uh, or the challenges that some of these kids are are dealing with with their bodies or their voices or their health or or, or you know go on and on and on. Um, right. hmm. So that was just a really helpful interaction. Um, you know, now we just finished a week at camp in Grand Rapids uh, last week, where I got to see some kids that I met in 2014 and 2015 and who came to camp every year until COVID when we shut down. Um, and mm. this was the first time we'd reopened since COVID. Oh, wow. See, you know, some of these kids were now 21, uh, 19, 18, who read and write four and five years better 
than when we met them to meet two of those, three of those kids, two of whom are going to four-year colleges, and they're not majoring in crib courses. Like one kid's majoring in engineering. Um, that kid couldn't spell when he was 12 years old, and he can spell anything he wants now. Wow. Uh, he always could read well. He always could uh, communicate really effectively with symbols. What he couldn't do was go past that communication board with spelling, and now he can, and it's opened up the world for him. So wow, um, exciting to see some of these kids over time. Yeah, that is. And I love that um, here that, you know, he was 12. So when some of us think of our students and think, well, oh, they're, you know, they're already 12. And it's like, there's, it's not too late. There's never, there's never a, the wrong time to begin literacy instruction if students don't have, aren't reading and writing. The ideal time is when you meet somebody who's willing to teach you. Love that. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about your camp? Uh, sure. Uh, it's Camp Alec. Um, it's named after um, Gina, uh, one of the uh, organizers' uh, sons, uh, and um, has an acronym that I've known too long and couldn't tell you what it stands for. I'm sure you can find <laughs> it. Um, but um, years ago, Karen and I used to do, for 15 years, we did a literacy camp in Minnesota that was mostly walking, talking kids with disabilities, we'd get a few augmentative communication users each summer. Um, one summer, Tina, who is Gina's friend, a lot of these moms know each other from the augmentative communication camps. And Tina um, um, brought her son uh, who uses augmentative communication and, um, and then talked with Karen and me about whether we might be interested in trying to do a literacy camp that focused in AAC. And so, that was sort of the initial conversation that led then Tina and Gina do all the organizing and keep the kids happy and uh, interact with the families all year long, uh, maintain a Facebook site, um, um, just do all, all the kinds of things that um, uh, Karen and I could do, but it would take us away from all the gazillion other things that we're better at. Um, uh -huh. And it's not that these folks don't also have lives. They have rich and busy lives, but they're committed um, to right. the kids, to their success. So they organize and Karen and I do the teaching. We bring in uh, roughly 20 kids with disabilities, um, almost all of whom are augmentative communication users. Uh, there was one exception to that and has been for a couple of years. Um, um, a girl who came by accident initially and then loved it so much, she keeps coming back. Um, oh. She has cerebral palsy and loves writing and uh, very excitedly this year announced that she also loves reading now and oh, then before yeah. the end of the week figured out she had been doing all of her reading listening to um, audio versions while she read and um, Karen proposed to her that maybe she turn off that tape she might find that she could still read and she did and she could and um, mm -hmm. so that was a real breakthrough for her to realize you know, I actually can read. Um, now, it, it matters how difficult that text is, but that kid now can read, you know, upper elementary stuff uh, with understanding silently. And that's a huge, um, huge amount of growth since we met her a couple of years ago. Well, pre-COVID. Um, so wow. um, continues to grow. Um, so so roughly 20 kids who use AAC, um, varying abilities from emergent to um, these kids this year who were uh, a couple of them heading to college um, and everything in between um, and roughly the same number of professionals. So we bring in uh, speech pathologists, special educators, um, sometimes administrators or OTs, uh, people who would like uh, to learn more and practice uh, uh, trying out some of the methods that we talk about in the book and have talked about for a long time. Wow. Bring up a good point. Um, when you're talking about how Karen says, turn off the um, audio and see what you can. And then she's like, oh, I'm a reader, right? She kind of has this epiphany. We have talked to people with early in early intervention too, where we're like, you know, we, when we have typical children and we're reading and they fill in a line that's reoccurring, right? But he was still hungry or he, you know, they're saying, and you, and you say to that typical child and you say, um, did you read that? Right. And you are identifying them as readers and writers, even before they are, um, you know, conventional readers and writers. 
And there's a belief system within our young, young children that they will be readers and writers. I loved it. I was teaching my daughter to read and she was really young and my son was too. And he said, when I become a girl, can I read? (laughs) And I was like, well, you actually are going to read either way. But yes, basically they're like, they they think that they're going to be readers and writers. And I, I wonder how much of that plays into so many things. Like you're talking about this girl that's been in these these camps and really likes to write and all this stuff. And then there's this, like, there's this maybe uh, unbelief that I'm a really am going to be a reader. And I wonder how much we play into that just by the way that we interact with our young students and the, the way that we talk about literacy and young ages. Can you speak a little bit to the power of that belief system? Yeah, I, th- I think it's reflected in the language that we use that, that, um, that kids hear over and over. So um, I, I can think back to a couple of cases. My youngest son uh, went to kindergarten, able to read at a very basic level and, you know, willing to write and, you know, he couldn't spell, he was a kindergartner, but, um, but, you know, he sort of thought of himself as a reader and writer. He came home early in the school year with a picture that had um, his writing on it. And I just, I said, that's fabulous. Can you read that with me? And he, he told me he couldn't read it it was kindergarten writing. And so in an attempt, well-intentioned attempt to help the kids know they were learning how to spell, his teacher labeled what he was doing as something other than writing. Mm-hmm. And so um, so he, he, so a kid who would have three weeks prior to that read that willingly to me by making it up the same way other young writers do, um, right. was unwilling to take that chance. And and so it's that sort of, um, it's not, you don't realize it's risk-taking until you start calling it emergent writing or uh, developmental mm-hmm. spelling, or you tell kids they're reading a level A when they should be reading a level G, mm-hmm. or, right. you know, you can't, you know, you we put these barriers up that we intend them well, but they're all sort of adult language about what kids aren't doing that is that we view as necessary to be fully literate and all of that language kids absorb and, and turn it into Mm -hmm. belief systems. Right. And and understandably, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, your son's misinterpretation that reading is what girls do because that's what his his sister was doing. Right. Like (laughs) that sex change that we can read. Like, it's just, (laughs) you know, it's, it's natural. It's, it's funny. And it's, and it's, but it's real, like it's uh-huh. it's a real belief mm-hmm. that we have to be really thoughtful about how we talk with kids. You know, it's it's why you don't pretend to read what they're writing because you're not sure, mm-hmm. right? You right. ask them to to you or with you. You ask them if they can't talk, like many kids who use AAC. What we right. don't want to do is ask them to tell us word for word with their device what it says because that's not a read aloud experience. That's a matching experience. Instead, mm-hmm. we'll say something like, well, can you tell me about your writing? And kids who have the ability will communicate one or two or or elaborate com- uh, uh, composition in, in their symbols to talk about what they've written. When they can't do that, when they're, when they're still trying to figure out how AAC works, then what we need to do is find ways to interact that don't don't say something like, I heard an Iowa principal say, oh, you wrote a lot of letters. And I thought that's not the message. That That's not what, what mm-hmm. you did. You were communicating. I can't read it yet. You're mm-hmm. not conventionally delivered enough or or communicative enough symbolically to tell me about it. But that But we're devaluing it or giving you a false message when we say something like, you wrote a lot of letters. It's not the goal. The goal is to communicate your thoughts to somebody else, or maybe just remember them for yourself later. Um, right. And so, so we've taken to grabbing a picture, uh, or an object, or an experience. And so, when kids write something that that we can't read, when they uh, don't have the capability of communicating with us symbolically to talk about what they've written, we can at least acknowledge what a wonderful topic they're writing about and encourage them to write some more. So. It's always love what you wrote about uh, swimming in the lake. Uh, tell me more, right? And right, so right. it's I value it. I want to hear you. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be able to read it. <laughs> right. I and love that. You know, good point. Go, and it's go ahead, all about 
yeah, reframing how we are approaching it and what we are saying. And I, I'm just picturing some of those things you were saying, like some of the catchphrases, right? Like, tell me more. They seem so natural when we talk about it, but you know, like you're saying with the principal, it's not always. And just having those up as reminders for people. Like, um, I love that. I was just thinking when you were talking about signs, um, one of the things Project Core I think has done is I believe there's some place in that website where you can download posters and, and put up reminders yeah. for practitioners. Yeah, um, I think that's that's right. a great idea if, if you're new to this, just to remind yourself. Um, mm -hmm. It's different for everybody. Most most special ed for kids with severe disabilities has not been very special. Um, and when you start taking the the view that kids can learn and will learn if you teach them effectively, you sort of need a transition to go from being nice to them to actually teaching. So right. Even yeah. his comment, you wrote a lot of letters, doesn't doesn't actually even engage a, a person. Like there's no, there's no even required response there. And there's almost like a, I don't know, I don't know if you can respond to me. So I'm not even gonna try to say this differently. I think one of the things you always say is tell me more. And I think that's a probably kind of um maybe a guiding principle that, that runs through this literacy instruction in both with reading and with writing, but but tell me more seems to get if if some if someone is a mean length of utterance of one word then tell me more gets you to two right tell me more works kind of across the board with communication and literacy but so i was just wondering we were are asking all our guests kind of like you know what are some of the guiding principles that you've learned along the way and i know that you, there's a lot of them but um i we are so interested to hear kind of what are those these base principles that we all need to be paying attention to um well the one answer is we've talked about that in chapter 2 we called it conditions for learning and so any any and all of those i think are relevant when it comes to basic principles the one that seems to be eye-opening more than some of the other, well, coupled, but one it that sort of jumps out sometimes when we're talking about it with people is cognitive clarity, like helping kids understand why they're doing what they're doing. So, so, so much of what we do in school is schedule-based, um, IEP-based, um, uh, and, and we do it because we've always done it that way. It's, we sort of get in this it's educational inertia. We do it that way because we've always done it that way. Why, why are we doing English at nine o'clock? Well, we always do English at nine o'clock. Right. Why are we reading? Uh, you know, why are we putting our books away and going outside? Well, it's time for recess. Not there's no like that. All of that kids can learn to follow schedules. But what you're getting at that point is behavioral compliance or non-compliance. Right. I don't want to do that, and so I resist. Or I, you know, I'm a good kid. I'll do what you tell me. I don't really want to. And I got no idea why, but I'll do it because I'm a nice kid and um, my mom will punish me if I don't. You know, like there's there's various reasons kids will do it. But it doesn't mean they understand. And cognitive clarity is really about understanding why you're doing what you're doing. And a story I frequently told is uh, visiting a student teacher years ago. And I walked in a kindergarten class where uh, a boy was missing, and so I sat in his seat. And if you've ever visited a typically developing kindergarten class, the chairs are the sort of Lilliputian. They're tiny. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was a long time going from standing down to that chair. But as I was sitting in it and going down, I looked at the writing of the kid. They were all writing in journals, and I thought, this is fabulous. But what I realized that was less than fabulous was they weren't writing in their journals. They were using a notebook and making capital letter R's one right after another, left to right. When they filled a line, mm -hmm. they went to the next line. If you're familiar with child development, little girls tend at that age to have better fine motor control. So some of those little girls had filled the whole page with R's um, and we're on to page two of capital R's. And so uh, one of the questions I love asking kids in school is, what are you doing? Um, and and so this kid looked at me like I'm an idiot, you know, like, aren't you an adult? Can't you see? What <laughs> and he says, making ours. And I said, next question, which is always really important. Why? And so his answer, which and so answers are predictable. His was a, not what I most frequently get, but also one I often get. But you often get because she told me to point to the teacher. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's behavioral compliance. That's not cognitive clarity. I still don't know right. why I'm an R, 
And why am I making an R and not the number three or reading a social studies book or going out to reset? Like, why am I making an R? What's the value for me personally now and in the future? And you right. can get that inductively, but it's better, especially when kids are young, to help know up front. But, uh, and, but what he told me, and, and so he didn't tell me that she told me to. What he did tell me was it was our day, which is uh, a, a reasonable, actually, I'm glad it was our day and not our week or our until we have memorized our with 80% accuracy on four out of five days. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, at least it was a daily change, but that's scheduling, that's teacher scheduling. And that's not language that should ever have been used with a kid. Imagine a kid right. with autism being told it's our day and that kid wants to write an R word tomorrow. And it's not our day. What does that kid do? Right. right. So set up these challenges. But so so it was our day. And, and, the, and the, tw- the tweak on that, which, you know, <laughs> you know, you can't make up some of these stories like like. Um, so the kid whose CD I was I was in, the kid who was absent was Robert. Like, <laughs> why couldn't we be making ours so that we could write to Robert about what he missed in school or or that we right. missed him or. Or Robert, you know, we're playing with trucks and the trucks go, and we could make, you know, 16 R's, but we'd be making the noise that a truck makes, not making an R to make an R. You know, we could make dinosaur roars. We could do all kinds of R things and help little kids understand it's not our day and we're not making R's one after another for no reason other than she told me to. We're doing it because we can use it to communicate in this case, to our buddy Robert, who's not here, about things that we like and he likes, and we can share ideas in the meanwhile, practicing an R in isolation. So, right. and isn't right. that more fun? And, much and more I'm fun. thinking about what does inclusion look like on the AAC device? Are they just hitting R as many times as they can, <laughs> you know, or right. are they using an alternative pencil to switch, you know, to, to go all the partner assist scanning all the way to R how many times have they got to do that? You know what I mean? Like that is, that's, that's like taking a task and saying, how do I make that's, that's not that that's inclusive in the sense that they're doing what everyone else is doing, but it's, it's brutal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and futile. Back to your original question. So you asked about principles. That was one. Um, yes. clarity. And teachers have to have it before kids can have it. Mm-hmm. So I think if we don't know why we're teaching, we can't really explain it to kids in meaningful ways. And I don't think most teachers know why they're making ours, other than it's our day. Thought deeply about communication, and particularly with kids who use AAC, the power of what we're teaching them when it comes to literacy. Um, yeah. And I think that's really important to help them see, experience, feel and never feel like they're not doing it right uh, or conventionally or whatever level we think they need to be doing it at. Um, you know, I, uh, tell me more has been really powerful. And we came across that just observing a third grade uh, classroom with a kid, um, who a kid with autism who was doing some writing and like many beginning writers communicated in single words. Um, and I mean, we watched this at camp this week, ask a kid to write who's a beginning writer. If you get writing, it's going to be sort of single word or a couple of characters and tell me more becomes powerful for expanding that his aide didn't say, tell me more specifically, but you know, he would put one word and she'd say, he, he, he for instance, he's looking at this one page. He says, wind. And she says, just wind, wind, just wind, wind. Well, I, nothing else. And he says, blow. And so he's thinking, and composing single words, but by saying in her way, tell me more, loved and watching it. It's the first time we'd ever seen that, first of all. You know, most of what we do with writing feedback is really specific. Tell me more about the character. Write more about the setting. You misspelled this word. You left out this particular kind of information. Put these things in that if I were writing your paper, I would have put in. And you should too, and think that that's sort of helping a kid develop voice, right. develop his own way of communicating. The power of what mm-hmm. she did was, I don't know if it's in your head, but I want to hear more of it. And so mm-hmm. he ends up with this, uh, the first day, instead of six words, 17 words across six pages. Wow. And so, he, you know, like tripled his output just with that sort of in various ways saying, tell me more. 
almost none of them directive. And so we talked right. about how excited we were. We talked with her at the end of the day. And she asked, what do I do tomorrow? And we said the same thing. She took that first draft. Again, think about how rarely this happens when we're teaching writing with any kids, let alone kids who use AAC. How uh-huh. often do we ever get to go back to a text and rework it in the way that right. we're writing, right? Um, typically, you write something, you turn it in, you get a grade, you get told all the things you did wrong, and a number gets put at the top or a letter. But that's not like there's there's not much learning opportunity there in the way that there is when you play with your thoughts repeatedly. He went back second day and all she did on each page was tell me more. And so he ends up with this extended text. I believe it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 plus words. And so wow. now on from six words to 17 in first draft, tell me more, 17 to more than double in in revision. And so it's that that opportunity to explore your own thoughts with support. Like he wasn't going to put it himself. Um, but if he's continually told, I want to hear what you have to say, and I don't quite understand what you're telling me, but not told, here's exactly what you need to tell me and right. how he's developing his own way of communicating. And you get that skill that transfers into AAC, where perpetually you've got this telegraphic communication because good communicators recognize if I don't communicate quickly, I'll lose my audience unless they're familiar mm-hmm. with the way I communicate. So they give you two mm-hmm. words, but you're not quite sure. So you say, mm, can you tell me a little bit more? I'm not sure what you mean, right? Well, that's honoring that communicator in ways that we rarely honor kid communicators. Right, true, true. Mm-hmm. And I love that, you know, you talk about that the, the goal of this is communicating your ideas in writing and and not, and so the, the teacher or the person that's helping them at camp is, they know the goal and they're not saying, we got to add punctuation or whatever. It reminded me of your um, your keynote speech that we loved from the Leading with Literacy from Building Wings. And you kind of talked about that. What What is your goal? And, and, and that we want to continue to build them as readers and writers with that tell me more and adding. And I love the idea of you talked about going back to the text multiple times because not only does that let them continue to build them their story and their what they want to talk about, but it I think it also kind of helps the the adult to say it's okay to take this time because we're going to keep revisiting it and and it's okay because um, this is our goal is to focus on this text and we have m- multiple opportunities you know um, I think sometimes we feel a lot of pressure to have a result for a specific thing we're looking for. Yeah, not, and you not- mentioned earlier. I think the vocabulary is important. We're not calling it a correction. We're not correcting yesterday's work, <laughs> you know, we're not, which is what I, when I think of my young children work, they, you know, they bring home, they, they bring it home for corrections, you know, right. the, and it's like, that's that the teacher's like, well, that's where they're learning when they're correcting their work. And I was like, okay, so how do we use different vocabulary around that? So, because if not, everything's everything you wrote is wrong. Right. If you think about, so I, I, I taught people who want to be teachers when they grew up for a long time. Uh, and I would ask questions like, do you like to read and do you like to write? And the people who don't like to read are fewer than the people who don't like to write. Th- that is, do you choose to read when you don't have to? Do you choose to write when you don't have to? Uh-huh. There are more people who choose to read as a form of relaxation, pleasure, seeking information that they don't have to seek. Um, but when you ask them about experiences, what they all remember and are terrified by is oral reading typically round mm-hmm. robin, where yeah. their errors were pointed out to them and they were f- afraid of making mistakes. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you got into that, if you was round robin, all the strategic kids were practicing their paragraph. They were counting, I'm going to mm-hmm. be number three. Mm-hmm. They didn't learn anything. They just got practice at that one paragraph so that they made fewer errors and were embarrassed less. Right. But nobody enjoyed that. Nobody really learned to read by doing that. The other piece in writing is if you ask, do you write when you don't have to? Almost no one raises their hand. Mm-hmm. I would contend it's because of that kind of instruction. All of the instruction mm-hmm. we get in writing is error identification and teachers. How on earth anybody? I, I don't think you can can actually engage in learning and have the belief that that teacher shared with you. So 
The best way to learn is to have all your errors pointed out to you. And isn't that a positive, rewarding experience? And don't you want to do that again tomorrow? Because it's really fun when people point out what you're not good at. Right, right. I would contend you can teach writing and kids never know they made a mistake. Mm-hmm. That'll never happen in public schools, but you could do it. And mm-hmm. what you do is mm-hmm. as a teacher, you identify problems and you turn them into teaching tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to tell a kid he does not spell some word. Add it to the word wall. Add it to the mm-hmm. making word list. No, help that mm-hmm. kid in final draft. But you don't have to circle it, tell them it's wrong, make them figure it out. You don't have to tell. You just don't have to. You do have to teach and you can teach without identifying error. I'll just tell you, people are are amazed at the writing the kids do at camp. I'm just writing taught well is the easiest thing in the curriculum. It's inherently individualized. They can only do it at their own level with their own writing tool. You can make it more or less accessible. But if you don't tell them what they're doing wrong, you value it, you publish it, you share it with other people. Uh, Kids love writing. They love to communicate. Um, and if you've got that, now you can teach. You can't teach writing in the absence of a text. So if kids won't write much because of your critique, you've lost the battle already. So. Right. Mm-hmm. I also think, though, then you talked about this in the keynote and lots of other times throughout the book is um, it's individualized if they get to choose the topic that they, they want to read about. And definitely when I was in school, I can't remember ever having a choice. I'm sure somebody at some point did, but I can't remember ever having a choice of what to write about. It was, if I, if it was, it was like, you know, write about your favorite food. And they think that's individualized because you get to pick something within this narrow category, right? Not to mention that so many AAC users are, um, you know, G2 fed and don't eat. And like the, the, the amount of discussion around food and reading, reading around food and um, writing around food at this early is, is interesting. And it's only, it's, it's apparent when you're working with kids that haven't experienced that, but that's sidebar. But um, yeah, the idea of how I think we want, I think educators want to have it so structured that they pre-pick the topics, but how much, how much of a disservice that really is in writing. It, and it takes away that. So part of um, the model that we've always worked off is is probably the most frequently cited in writing uh, research. And that's that um, Flower and Hayes from the early 80s. And what they did was ask literate um, young adults to, just to think aloud while they wrote. And they took that conversation and turned it into a model of what probably is going on in your head as you engage in composition. And one of those is the ability to generate topics. It's also the ability to organize them. It's also the ability to think about your topic relative to your audience and so on. If you pick topics, you're not giving kids opportunity to develop that skill. Mm-hmm. It's going to be critical as adults. So, so what happens when something wonderful happens in school, but, um, but that was never a topic that somebody gave you permission to write about or asked you to write mm-hmm. about, and you don't know that you pick your own topics. Like and, and, and people say, well, of course they know that. Well, how would you know it if you never have the experience? But we, we mm-hmm. the number of things that kids with disabilities do as teenagers and adults that they learn by being taught in one way. So think of the number of, I don't know how often you interact with speaking kids with Down syndrome. I can't, t- I can't name on one hand the number of those kids across my lifetime who read silently because right. when they go home, Mom says, you read this page and then I'll read this page. And so mm-hmm. all of that's out loud. They go to school and a teacher says, read this out loud. And then the next kid reads out loud and the next kid read. They never read. They never, they, they've never experienced it. No one's ever shown them. Nobody helps them make that transition. They don't read on their own. And so the, where on earth do they learn that mm-hmm. if nobody shows them? It's the same mm-hmm. with everything else. You know, these kids have, because of their, their bodies and their health and everything else, a, a narrower range of experience than an advantaged child. And so the kinds of things they might learn by accident, they're less likely to learn by accident. The kinds of opportunities that kids have because they go grab something and and mom mom reconfigures it into something safer or or more conventional, that, like that's just less possible. It's not impossible, but it just doesn't happen with that frequency. 
So you really have to be mm-hmm. thoughtful about the learning environments you're creating and the things you're studying. Right, right. Dave, um, what what do you feel most passionate about related to AAC and literacy? Is that a hard question? <laughs> um, uh, my belief that all kids can learn. I, I think that um, I've, I've had a, the good fortune to work with really smart, capable people my entire career, starting with Yoder and uh, Jim Cunningham, who was a reading comprehension whiz, uh, you know, Karen Erickson, Patsy Pierce, Jane Steelman, um, all people who are really good at something, emergent literacy, uh, assistive technology, who knew things I didn't know. Um, mm-hmm. Believe kids could learn. Didn't you know? It wasn't that sort of battle. Lots of folks in schools are having to fight. If they start trying to teach in some of the ways we're proposing, sometimes that feels pretty foreign to places where they go. Well, that's not realistic, and you know we need to transition these kids to real, um, <laughs> whatever that means. And I, you know, like what are the opportunities for kids, particularly kids who use AAC? What can they do as adults in the absence of the ability to spell? and use syntax. Um, they can say what somebody else allowed them to say. And, you know, that's, that just is, I can't imagine living that life myself and I wouldn't want to put it on anyone else. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, but I think we're, we're too eager to do that. I think we, we look at bodies and assume brains are uh, equally limited. We look at um, brains that we measure as limited and think there's not enough there to learn to read and write. I haven't found that brain yet. Right. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you Kids can learn to read and write. They can learn to spell. They can improve. Uh, even if they got to the level of a four-year-old in terms of letter sound understanding, they'd be able to communicate way beyond their communication board, just spelling phonetically. And mm-hmm. wouldn't that open up the world for some of these kids? Right. So, you know, I think it's not, and I remember people repeatedly, frequently from an LD orientation, asking sort of like, how do we predict that conventional learning learning success? And if we don't predict it, can we predict the ceiling? And uh, no, <laughs> I can't predict. I, I, can, I, I don't know who's going to learn or how far or, uh, but I believe they can if we figure it out and it's Mm -hmm. on us, it's not on the learner. Um, You don't have to feel guilty about that. Like don't go home and lose sleep. You know, we're going to lose sleep because we care, but, Mm -hmm. um, but the goal is not to lose sleep. The goal is to believe in kids. And when things aren't going well, problem solve and figure out with other capable, like-minded people uh, who often don't know what you know, and and know things you don't get at that problem solving and try something else. Schools have sort of the opposite take and are getting more and more inflexible. Um, you know, look at the science of reading. It's you know as if there's only one way to teach phonics. That's baloney. Um, mm-hmm. as, if, as if this wasn't an argument that's been around since 1955. Um, if you look, go back and read. Recommend this to anybody listening. Go back and read um, Why Johnny Can't Read, first published in 1955. And if the arguments in that book don't sound exactly like the science of reading, you're not paying attention. But let's not pretend the science of reading is science. It's politics. And then let's think about what it requires of, of learners. And can we just stop thinking about it relative to the vast majority of kids with disability? It's bad enough we're doing it to non-disabled kids. Um, but can we stop thinking about it relative to kids who don't have fine motor, who can't talk, um, who can't engage in metalinguistic rule memorization? Um, you know, can we just look at the demands of what we're asking and 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 think about alternatives for kids that just can't do those things, but are capable of learning if we would just stop being inflexible? Right, right. And I think sometimes, it starts with a connection too, you know, that we have that personal connection and we are interested in what they know, what they want to tell us. And uh, my mom was a um, uh, elementary principal for many years and she started in deaf education. And I recently found her journal from graduating college to start. And she said, I know these students I worked with in the clinic can become writers and 
I think the first step is that I need to learn how to connect with them and how to to help them see what they're writing. And I just thought it is it's about that connection. And I see that in your book um, all throughout. And I just I'm really enjoying what you're talking about with how we are reframing how we talk to students and what our goals are and, and how we connect with students. Um, and that we 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 know they can do it. I love that. I think that's um, we've had more than a few teachers that um, are are contemplating other careers that um, kind of get into this more problem solving orientation and and valuing learners and trying to help them um, progress in ways they're capable of. And and um, I think it's just re-energizing. Re I think it that. It's it's probably why most of us got into teaching, maybe not the problem solving, but we got into it because we cared about kids, um, uh -huh. cared about people, and and all <laughs> so many things that have happened over the last few decades are anti-child, anti-teacher. Um, you know, pulling books out of classrooms is not pro-child. Right. Um, pulling, uh, telling people you can only teach one way is not pro-teacher. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, threatening. Uh, Tying uh, teacher pay to student outcomes is absurd when you don't pick your students and you don't pick your neighborhood and you don't pick your school. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> institute the draft and do it system wide, mm -hmm. and then hold me accountable. And and worst teacher gets first pick next year. Like, <laughs> but but we don't have a system where that that is even vaguely fair uh, right. or supportive of better teaching. And right. so you know just. I don't know. There, there's so many people outside of education who think they can fix what really wasn't broken before they broke it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's just a, a lot of things that we could do a whole lot better if we honored kids and we honored teachers and then tried to figure out how to support that enterprise instead of threaten it. Right. Well, I think you we are lucky that, you know, like you said, these things are not new ideas. These, things, these principles have been around, but I think we're lucky that we have things like your your book to, to mm -hmm. re-energize us, like you said, to say, okay, I want to get together with the people who, my colleagues who I feel confident can do this with me and take a fresh look. And the resources are out there, um, luckily. And like you said, it's about problem solving and finding those people who you can ask when you don't know. And yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one thing, I mean, definitely the book, you pulled together so many years of research. Um, you know, we used to, you would see this and go, oh, that, that, that's good. And, and then, then you'd read something later in your career, right? But I feel like you pulled together so much research and built on so many things. And that's something that, you know, the average SLP and SPED teacher is not doing, right? <laughs> is pulling all that together. So the, com the compilation of what we know about reading and writing that got put together in the book was is just priceless. One of the things I don't, I don't, I don't know how I quote the book and know which one, if it was you or Karen that said it. But anyways, one of the things was, you know, nobody is too anything to, to read or write, meaning nobody is too disabled, nobody is too low, nobody is too um, has too short of an attention span. Nobody is too whatever. So I think one thing that we want to know is like, um, how, what do you do when, um, you were trying to elicit buy-in? What do, what do an S, what does an SLP who's like all in on all of this, or what does a teach even a teacher, but the paras are not buying in or whatever. Do you have some advice about, you know, getting buy-in for those reluctant, skeptical people that continue to believe that kids are too something to, to even provide it, the instruction? Um, I think Karen probably has more systematic answers to that than I do. Uh, the quote, by the way, comes from David Yoder. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, um, and actually from David Yoder's son, who uh, asked if he could go out to play and um, when his mom questioned his desire to go out, he said, well, it's not too anything. It's not too rainy. It's not too sunny. It's not too cold, uh -huh. it's too hot. It's not too anything. Can I go out and play? David turned that into the statement that you were sharing um, and, and used it repeatedly. It's ingrained in our life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in terms of helping, I, I think the center has a variety of projects now that are working school-wide uh, or system-wide or multiple sites. Um, my experiences have been more 
singular classroom and teaching and um, less of that sort of system change that they're engaged in at this point. Um, but, you know, some of the things I think, um, you know, there, there's a certain amount of ignorance. And so I do think helping people know about some of the resources and there's some really fine um, years ago, I was engaged in a, uh, first thing I did in graduate school to pay the bills was uh, look at adolescent literacy programs with another nonprofit center. And we traveled all around the country and and looked at various ways that people were um, helping struggling readers at the adolescent in middle school um, make progress. And um, one of the things was we found individuals could make a big difference if they were in the right position. So a reading coordinator could make a change over multiple staff or a, a, a special ed coordinator or, or, or. And what what we saw repeatedly was they had some sort of ongoing training going on. So whether it was we're doing a book study this, this semester and next semester we're going to uh, implement shared reading or whatever, um, um, that sort of ongoing, not um, we'll talk about it this week and then we don't talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, unless you come to me with a problem or whatever, but um, you know, t- if if you're a teacher, if you're a speech pathologist, you know how isolating those professions can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're typically one to one or one to a group mm-hmm. with no other adult being in charge except you. And right. if you're teaching kids with severe disabilities, there might be two additional adults who are supporting but don't have necessarily more than a high school education and may or may not have experience with disabilities mm-hmm. uh, and who may or may not have ever been in a classroom where people thought those kids could learn. Right. And, and so it's, it's a different proposition, but, but you kind of feel alone. So I think those ongoing conversations are really powerful. One of the things Dick Allington learned and shared from his work, trying to shift uh, views of, of teachers and, and, and methods was that um, one of the best things you can do in one of those power positions of a little bit more than a classroom power. So mm-hmm. you're the coordinator of something or the lead teacher or the grade level chair or the whatever. Um, one of the things he found was uh, work with the people who want to change first. Um, mm-hmm. So people who want to figure out how to teach these kids who or who believe they can but don't know how right. are the people to put some energy into um, because that's where you will get some bang for your buck. Every kid deserves a good education. We're not there yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so sometimes then creating um, these models of, you know, look how well it works in this teacher's classroom Mm -hmm. incentive for additional teachers. The national writing project did a really interesting study years ago. Um, I don't remember the title, but I've always called it the adjacent classroom study. What they did was look at what happened in the classroom of teachers who went through the writing project in the summer program when they went back to school. You know, did they implement what they've been taught? And they did. Um, You know, there were big changes from previous year to first year after being taught. What they also did that was clever was look at adjacent classrooms. So the classroom to the left and to the right of that teacher, Hmm. did they find any changes? And in fact, they did. And so, so what happened was apparently either teachers talked in the hallway or kids moved between classrooms and teachers heard excitement and they wanted to know, you know, what's going on. But in some way, there's sort of that bleed um, of, of interesting different ideas that seem to be working on some level. Um, you know, I think most teachers want to be good. I think they want to help kids. I, um, I think they're sometimes tired of being told what to do. They're mm-hmm. being tired of being told to do something that won't work. Um, And they're sometimes frustrated. They don't know what the alternatives might be, even if they have that freedom. Mm -hmm. And so information is really powerful. I think that's, that's what the center has been able to do. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a nonprofit. (laughs) There's nothing for sale at the center. Right. Right. Oh, yes. The resources are just generous and amazing. And you need an alternative pencil, you can find it. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, you know, you make a good point though, is focusing on people who are ready for change, because if you focus on the last person who's willing, you will burn out before you change a mindset. Right. 
and that's that's what we're seeing too is some people are you know getting disheartened or leaving the field or going private or which is which is all fine if that's if that's where you're supposed to go but it's like how do we retain really good teachers um and and build them up. And I think you're right. I think you have to kind of keep an eye out for the people who are believers in these kids. They just don't have the tools because now we have a few tools, you know, <laughs> that's a good idea. And in, in just a few locations, you know, um, you mentioned earlier in the eighties, people would say, so where do I learn more about this? And you'd say, well, you know, there's this uh, woman, Patty King Devon, who's a teacher down in Atlanta. And I yeah. think she's going to look out and, and there's this other teacher in Asheville, uh, Caroline Musselwhite, and I think she's got a book or maybe some, she does workshops or something. And yeah. I read this paper and I'll get you a copy. And, but it was like, everything was everywhere. Right. And there wasn't, right. much, right? There wasn't a lot in the encyclopedia at that point either. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh. now, now we've got a book that'll get you introduced. We, we teach courses regularly. Um, we have multiple doctoral students who've gone through one or one, either Karen's school or mine. Um, you know, we're, we're, there's a, a growing number of people who understand central principles and are doing it reasonably well. And, um, you know, I think uh, having a little, a little humility in that. And um, I think sometimes there's a little bit of territoriality in our field. I'm not quite sure why it's so tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think if we just look and 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 go from a, a child place first and a teacher clinician practitioner place um and a parent place i think that we can do lots of good um and we don't have to feel threatened by one another so much as um figure out what works yes and then share share that with others um so i'm thinking about listeners who are very excited now they they knew they were interested in supporting literacy. They've heard from you. They're going to get your book. What what would you tell them as a suggested starting point for literacy instruction? I'd, I'd say read the book and then decide the answers to those four questions. Um, so we have four questions we describe in the book. Uh, answer yes, no for your kids. So they include things like, um, you know, is the child engaged during shared reading? You know, not do they understand the book when you're reading it? Did are they engaged? Mm-hmm. So they look at the page. They look at you. Do they sit with you, or are they that kid that's all over the room, or that kid whose head never comes up, or 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 right? And and so if you answer those four questions, then you know I need to be doing comprehensive emergent, or I need to do comprehensive conventional. Having made that decision, do it all. Don't start with one piece. Uh, um, we've found it's better to do all of them badly and get better than to do one of them to perfection. Right. What you're saying is like, sorry, like don't just do shared reading because you're confident with shared reading. Do writing, do all of the things every day. Mm -hmm. If I had, um, followed that advice, I would have taught phonics in seventh grade when I was a teacher. I didn't teach phonics because it didn't occur to me that uh, even though I had a student uh, who couldn't spell his own name, um, that probably I should be teaching phonics um, in a meaningful way to some of the students in my seventh grade class. I was comfortable teaching reading. I knew how to teach reading comprehension. I had worked with Jim Cunningham. He was a whiz. I believe in his methods, his approaches. Um, I had been a writing project fellow, so I love teaching writing, enjoyed it. You know, got, I could get kids motivated. We were doing lots of writing. We were revising in a day when we didn't have computers. So we'd rewrite by hand and they'd still do it because they were going to publish. Um, I was comfortable with self-directed read. I read out loud to my kids. They loved it. Um, we had silent reading time. I had a huge in-class library because I grew up in a reading house. Mm-hmm. What I did teach was phonics. I didn't feel comfortable with it. I didn't think that most approaches were age appropriate uh, and I just didn't have enough experience. Mm. And so I never got to it <laughs> in four years. Mm. Of teaching, I never got to it. Right. And that's my fear. If you don't jump in on all um, that you replicate the failures of the past. Mm. Uh, and so jump in on all the pieces. And then if you, if at all possible, find a colleague uh, who's, who's either doing it already or willing to jump in with you. 
Um, so you can compare notes because I think those conversations are really powerful mm-hmm. and problem solving orientation. Uh, it's really helpful to, to have like-minded folks who either have different experiences or different expertise than you do. Um, I think that's where the progress comes. Then go to the Center for uh, Literacy and Disability Studies online and and look through the infinite variety of free resources. So. Yes. Well, I love two things about that. One, that you weren't good at all of this when you were born. <laughs> that, that gives us all hope. And I mean, also that, that yeah, we all, all, we all gravitate towards the areas that we feel comfortable in teaching. And um, we don't, we, just like our readers and writers, we don't want to do something we're not good at. And so we are also, we have to even model that, you know, we are going to, we're on the struggle bus with, I think a lot of SLPs are on the struggle bus with writing. I think, I think we get phonics. I think we get letters. I think we get um, a lot of the reading components. And then we look at writing and we're like, "Uh, is that the OT's job? Or what if, what if it's not like, what is, what is writing versus the AAC? Like, there's a lot of like, it's, it's a little bit um, daunting, but I think if you go, well, I'll just let someone else do that part, then it's not comprehensive, is it? You know? So it's like, you can't, you can't wait. You only get better at it by trying and failing. And you, so you might as well get started, get, get, you know, get, get failing (laughs) so that you can figure it out. Never going to be easier than today. Uh, It's only going to get more um, complex and complicated over time. So yeah. Um, I like the struggle bus. Hadn't heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's super. It's been so fun to hear from you. I'm sure we can talk to you all day, actually. But um, what do you want people to know about what you're doing now? Besides retiring, obviously, you're retiring. But, but what what projects are you working on now? Where are you speaking at next? What What's kind of going on with you professionally? Um, I, I don't know where I'm speaking next. I'm not sure if I have anything lined up. Okay. Um, COVID brought a lot of that to a, a right. screaming halt. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think our camp has reopened and will stay open. Um, right. I, I uh, plan and hope to stay involved with that. That's a really useful, um, energizing um, week. Um, I, I hope that we can expand on that. Um, I won't be directly responsible for that. The things that I think I want to put my energy into are, are what you were just talking about, and that is uh, writing instruction. And so I, I think what I would like to do is a writing methods text, think about some of the problems that people are experiencing, talk about some of these issues of teaching rather than identifying error, uh, helping kids, you know, generate their own topics, not tell them what to write, um, try and put that in the context of what people are really trying to deal with in schools these days. So it, it um, there's a bridge for people to move in a different direction. Um, oh, that would be so useful. We would love to see I think that. There's a need for um, uh, more mini lesson ideas. So um, we've talked about trying to teach writing in particular, but uh, but most of literacy and, and mini lessons. So talk talk less and let kids experience more, um, and and help them process that. But don't uh, don't talk a lot. Kids don't get better at reading or writing if we talk at them a lot, um, and don't let them read and write a lot. Um, so, um, I, I think, uh, having a more comprehensive list of mini lessons would also be a useful thing. So I'm playing with those ideas and I don't know for sure. I have a number of unfinished papers. They'll get done eventually. So. <laughs> I bet you release the book and then you see, oh, look at how they interpreted that. Despite what explicitly we said, I guess they, AKA me and everybody else need a little more instruction on that. Like, despite the fact that the sentence is there, don't do this. This is still how it was interpreted. And now we're seeing how they're doing, how we all took that information and and took it from our angles. I know this because like even just doing any training on AAC and then I leave and come back and then I'm like, oh, so that's how you took that. That's what you did. You know what I mean? Or wow, we really overdid that one comment. I mean, I didn't realize you were going to glom onto that and do that daily, you know, because that's actually not comprehensive. So I'm sure the book has been, um, amazing for all of us, but I bet, I bet as the writer, you've been like, wow, okay. All right. Some of this has been, um, 
taken and out of context. Some of this has been overgeneralized. Some of this has been forgotten. It's right there. It's on the next page. We said this and yet no one did that. So um, I love that you're thinking about many writing lessons in particular, because I think that's where a lot of us don't feel as strong. And I bet that's where you feel like, ooh, let's get clear on this because the application of our ideas are not looking like we'd hoped <laughs> in some way or another. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's all accurate. Um, <laughs> probably we need to revise that book as well. So, um, ooh, addition two, getting toward that stage. So, well, we can't wait to hear more from you and see what comes next. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I know I learned a lot, and I'm just I'm so excited about this whole conversation. So, thank yes. you so much. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's a great service. So, thank you. Oh, great.